So it's April 1st, it's 2012. We're in the third part of a series called Spiritual Violence. If the first part was dealing with the flesh, the second part was dealing with the world, today we will talk about the entry of triumph into mankind. In our previous weeks, we looked at the Lord as a warrior. There were scriptures that we covered. Exodus 15 was one of them that you may remember. Exodus 15, 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. When the Hebrews pictured God, they pictured Him as a warrior. This was not mere biblical uh, imagery. It was the way that they thought about Him. In Exodus 12, 41, they named Him something. It says at the end of 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. In Hebrew, this is Yahweh Saba. It is the commander, the Lord of the armies of heaven, the Lord of the divisions of heaven. It's, it envisions Him as a general. We even looked at biblical references to His activities, the kind of things that are essential in understanding Him, but completely incompatible with what you're used to hearing about Him. This one came from Psalm 68 in the 21st verse. Surely God will crush the heads of His enemies, the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins. All of the ways people think about God, they never think about Him busting heads or crushing skulls. But the Hebrews did, and they were not wrong. They're right in their description of Him. If you persist in going your own way, the wages of sin are death. How about Isaiah 63? This would be the third verse and the seventh verse. I'm not giving you time to turn to these because I've taught on them for hours at a time, but I want to remind you as we move forward. I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anchor and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments, and I stained all of my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption has come. The Lord speaks about redemption in the same breath with vengeance. It's almost as if as He redeems some, He brings recompense to others. It's almost as if it is a glorious day for some, but a dreadful day for others. You know, the cross was a dividing line in human history. The ministry of Jesus is a dividing line in human history. It determines whether or not you are working with God or working against Him. A clear, absolute line. And the Hebrew prophets envisioned Him coming in garments that were stained with the blood of the nations because He would deal with all of those who had worked to advance the devil's cause. The seventh verse said something that was even more odd to us. I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, of the deeds for which He is to be praised according to all that the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things. In one breath speaking about blood-dripped garments. And in another breath, talking about, oh, I'll tell of His kindness, His good deeds. We say, how on earth could that be? Well, as we began to look at it, we found out that if the Lord did not defend His people, what the nations intended to do to His people was so vile, so terrible, so disgusting, that it was an act of kindness for Him to rain down hailstones on somebody. It was an act of kindness for Him to drown an Egyptian army. Because if he did not do those things, children would suffer, women would suffer, men would be enslaved. In Isaiah 59, the Hebrew prophet Isaiah says, 
he put on righteousness as his breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself as in zeal as in a cloak. He goes on to call him the Redeemer coming to Zion. The Hebrew imagery of a Redeemer was one with a sword in his hand and a breastplate on his chest. Why do you wear those things? Why does a boxer wear gloves? Why do you wear those things? Because you intend to have contact with the enemy. This is dramatically different from the view of the uh, 8 pound, 11 ounce golden diaper baby Jesus. You know, I, I can't help and I, and I often speak about people in the church from the pulpit. I know that makes some uncomfortable, but we're family, so it'll be okay. You know, uh, when I think of Renan, who's sitting in the back, I think of somebody I don't want to wrestle with, right? Is that a fair statement? Yeah. I, would, I would prefer not to wrestle with Renan. And the reason for that is Renan has practiced this. He's skilled at it. Jiu-Jitsu is something that he teaches for a living. When I think about Renan, that's how I think about him. But somewhere, Renan has a mother who held him in her arms. And when she thinks about him, she might think about a beautiful baby boy that was handed to her. At different times in our lives, at different stages in our reputation, in our history, people think different things. Is that not right? Renan, how would you like if in your gym we put up your baby pictures all over your gym and we said, come to Zion MMA and meet Renan. Probably he's not going to like that because that is not who he is. That is simply one moment in time when something began. See, if what we did is we took, Lindsay's a geologist, right? So Lindsay worked hard for her degree. She worked really hard to get something, to obtain something. If what we did, though, was post her kindergarten transcripts and define her by her kindergarten transcripts, would that be fair to Lindsay? Nobody likes this kind of thing. In fact, it makes it kind of odd when your mom learns to use Facebook, doesn't it? Or your grandma figures out she can attach emails and forward them. These things happen, and it's okay. It is a part of who we are, but it is not who we are. Jesus was born a human being. He was incarnated. That is definitely true. He started as a baby, but that is not the picture in total of the living God. In fact, the more complete picture is a God who is mighty beyond description. Why mighty? Why does the United States have a military, friends? If we didn't have a military, if there was no military here at all, what would happen to this nation? Somebody might, we'd be speaking German. Somebody would conquer us. Why does the nation of Cuba not invade the United States today? Because we have superior strength. See, there are wars in the heavens. There are clashings that are happening. And if the thief desires to steal from you, kill you, and destroy you, the only reason that he has not completed his task, the only reason, is there is a God that is too powerful for him, for him that prevents him. Are you hearing me? Okay, I'm not speaking a militant message, but we do live in a militant world. It's something worth understanding. When we covered these, it was a little unnerving to some of you to think of a loving God in terms of warfare or violence. However, to put it in context, what would happen to God's people if he did not fight for them? That's worth thinking about. 
What did the Babylonians do to Israel when God removed His hand? They tore open bellies and pulled babies out. They did. The Scripture declares it. That's an image we're completely uncomfortable with, but it was facing them on the other side of a wall. They killed women and children, showed no regard for the old. So we began to look at the heavenly realms and the earthly realms. We looked at the way in which they overlapped. I read to you from 2 Kings 19, 35. It says, That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men. We went on to Mark 5, verses 4 and 5. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart, broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. What was the point? Whether an angel of God or a demonic power, when a spiritual warrior steps into the earthly realm, the flesh is no match for them. The demon could not be bound. He so empowered the human body that he could not be bound with chains of iron, but a word from Jesus completely subdued him. The angel, 185,000 men stood against him, but just through running through the camp, he completely wiped them out. This gives us an idea. There are spiritual powers that are intent on hurting us. And the only thing that prevents them from hurting us is there is a God who is mighty to save who prevents it. Every day that you take a breath is defiance against satanic powers because if it were up to them, you would not have that breath. Who gave you the breath? God did. He did. And He made you to look like Him and they hate you for it. It was important to look at this conflict because fleshly and physical strengths of humans are never a match for spiritual warriors, whether they are good or evil. This also gives us insight into another connection. When a wicked army comes and does wicked things, it is because they are acting out the desires of wicked spiritual powers. The only reason God's people are not completely destroyed and overrun is that God is a warrior. He is too powerful for them. Well, you can see this in wholesale warfare, but that's not the only kind of place that you see spiritual violence. We look at Luke 4.18, the opening of Jesus' ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. How did they get that way? He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. How did they become prisoners? And recovery of sight for the blind and release for the oppressed. There are spiritual powers with desires upon your life. They want to imprison you. They want to impoverish you. They want to oppress you. Jesus' ministry was announced as the liberation from those things. In Luke 13, we saw a great example of serious spiritual violence. You say, those words don't go together, spiritual and violence. Here's how they do. Luke 13, 11, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. Hear this, she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. The Gospels detail casualty after casualty in a spiritual conflict that plays out on the human stage. It's happening all around us. There are a lot of reasons that people are not fighting this battle. It is usually because they fail to see the battle at all. Sometimes they try to fight a spiritual battle in a natural way. How many antibiotics could you give the woman who had been crippled for 18 years before she got better? All of them. How many surgeries?
surgeons could she see before she got better? All of them. The world doesn't contain enough surgeons to have helped her. Many times we are trying to fight a spiritual battle in a natural way. But the biggest reason that people fail is they try to fight a spiritual battle without the necessary preparation. Is it possible that there is somebody out there that is a match for the current heavyweight champion? Yes, of course it is. But can they just step out of the couch, out of the donut shop and into the ring? Probably not. There's a preparation that must happen. In Luke 10, the 19th verse, it's one that charismatic Christians have been able to quote a long time. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Why is that true? And yet, so often, we fail when we pray for people. Why is that true? How, how many services have you been in in your life where things, they said, brothers, really, warfare was done in the heavens tonight. And you're all, oh, yeah, yeah. And at first you give it the benefit of the doubt. You're like, yeah, it's probably war. I mean, we didn't see it, but there's probably warfare in the heavens happening. Friends, if there is warfare happening in the heavens, you know where it will show up? It will show up on the earth. What is on the earth is mirroring something in heaven. God made you in his image and made you to act like him. So that the deeds that he does there, you would do here. Warfare in the heavens shows up on the earth, whether good or bad. So when we see somebody that is uh, oppressed beyond description, discouraged, beat down, lame in every way, whether spiritually, physically, any way you think about it, that is because some evil power took aim upon them. And there's one people on the planet who are supposed to be in the business of fixing that problem. In Mark 9, the 28th verse, it says, After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? This was a man who came to them because his son was demonically oppressed. Jesus said, This kind can come out only by prayer and fasting. This begins to point to the lack of preparation in the body of Christ. It begins to point to the real problem in humanity. As Christians, we've learned in this church that we have three areas of overlapping contention. Three arenas, if you will. Uh, in World War II, we fought in more than one hemisphere. We fought in more than one medium. We fought in the air, but we also fought by land, and we also fought by sea. The battle for the kingdom of God is not in one area. It does not take place simply through the medium of these seats in your church. It does not take place simply in the medium of your flesh, or simply in the medium of your mind, or simply in the spirit. In fact, we found out that we battle with our own flesh, we battle with the temptations and desires of the world that appeal to our flesh, and we battle with spiritual forces. It is very much a three-front fight. But most Christians have got their heads in the sand to where we acknowledge only part of it. And in the charismatic world, we usually acknowledge the spiritual part, but ignore what it takes to be successful in spiritual realms. You can command the power of darkness to go day and night, but if you're in fellowship with it, it will not listen to you. 2 Peter 2.19 said this, they promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. That sounds like he's talking about really bad people, doesn't it? 
How many pastors have talked about holiness while they were sleeping with their secretaries? How many have talked about God's means of supernatural provision while their own churches were growing in debt every single day? How many pastors out there are speaking one message, but in their own lives, it is not being borne out? For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. This is not only about pastors, it's true about us. We are a slave to whatever has mastered us. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. We looked at two specific ways that the world compromises us and that we need to defeat in order to win spiritual battles. The first came from Galatians 5.17. It said that the ways of the Spirit were contrary to that of the flesh, and the flesh contrary to the Spirit. They were at war with each other. The first thing as Christians that we have to do, we began to learn, was to deny our very own flesh's desires. If Jacob was on a desert island, I have said many times through this series, and he had a sweet tooth, and then he got saved. The sweet tooth does not go away when he is saved because he has trained his flesh to desire sweets. Now mind you, I'm not saying anything's wrong with sweets. I'm saying something is wrong with fleshly desires that compete with our desires for God. Do you know that that's true? That was with the flesh, with the world that shows up in entanglements and things. Here's the first way. The first one came from James 1.27. said, Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. How many times have you had to struggle with thoughts that should not be in your head at all? We were driving down the road yesterday moving and I called Matthew and was teasing Matthew about something that just passed right in front of us. You, you don't have to desire to see it. It's being flaunted by a devil right in front of your face like any good fisherman might throw a bait into the water and drag it across an area to see where he gets a bite. How do you know what to catch fish with? We're going to examine the environment that they're in. We're going to look at the temperature of the water, the color of the water. We're going to find something that's appealing to them. When they look at it, it might look a little strange to them. But there's such a natural impulse inside of them to feed that flesh. They'll bite it even if they think they see it looking. Are we really all that different? The world is casting things in front of your flesh's desire, waiting to see what catches your attention. My, my, my. Fish don't have necks. Did you know that? Not a neck on a fish. In fact, if there's a neck on a fish, I don't want to see that kind of fish. I don't want to eat that. I don't want to be around that kind of fish. But human beings have a neck. I want to encourage you to use it. Watch, watch, watch this. It's completely defeating to the enemy. Psalm 101 teaches us to set no unclean thing before our eyes. It may be possible that he could plant something but he cannot make you look at it. Are you hearing me? Yes. One way is pollution in the world. Another came from 2 Timothy 2. said, Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian 
affairs. Some things are not dirty in and of themselves. Like not all desires of the flesh are wrong. Do you like to breathe, Larissa? There's nothing wrong with your desire to breathe. Not everything in this world is tainted. In fact, God said that it was good. But some things are simply not what is best for you at the moment. There might be nothing wrong at all with studying. But if you are studying when you should be, let's just suppose that you're studying to be a nurse, but you know CPR, right? I looked up, saw Angie, and I thought about a nurse. You're studying to be a nurse, but you already know CPR. Now Gabriel is dying right here, right? He can't breathe. He's dying right here. But Angie's called to be a nurse, and she has to study. Is there something wrong with studying while Gabriel's dying right here? But there's nothing wrong with studying. Do you hear what I'm saying? There is a way in which the devil will put you off track simply by having you entangled in things that are not what God wants you doing at the moment. How many times have you given your kids a task, a list of tasks? In my house, the, the, the task lists are very short for a reason. The attention spans are very short. Say, so I need you to do this and this. And you come back and they're doing some good thing, but it has nothing to do with what you tasked them to do. Whether well, there's one person in here that gave a chuckle to that because they recognize it. Nobody else has children that this happens with? Okay, the rest of you are the children that, that, that are doing this. The Lord has given us tasks, but as a church, as a body of Christ, we're so easily distracted. It's like, look, there's a bird. Forgot about the Great Commission. Oh, look over here. Here's something. Did you know that God will bless us? And we forgot about the Great Commission. Oh, oh, look over here. A new theological teaching. Isn't that wonderful? And we forgot about everything that God called us to. These are ways in which we can become aware of the devil's schemes. We studied Kareem from Joshua 6.18 and Joshua 7.12 about how loving, devoted things ensnares God's people and makes them liable to destruction. These were things that the devil meant to ensnare you and God said, I'm going to destroy them, don't touch them. Now, do we have to spell out what all of these are? These are all of those things that once a man or woman gets involved in, they're difficult to set down. These are all of those things that are a part of this world system and are passing away. They serve no real benefit to the people of God. But somehow or another, we're fascinated with them. How many of you believe that Hollywood has got some really evil stuff in it? The few of you that are not raising your hands, you, you lost the power to move them, or your spiritual compass has, has been... Uh, off-center. We all in here are acknowledging that Hollywood's got really wicked stuff in it. How much of their influence are you allowing in your life? How many of you accept that answer from your teenagers? You know, they're singing a two-life crew song, and I hope y'all don't know who that is. They're singing this terrible, rancid, nasty song, or listening to it, and you say, hey man, that's not godly. Throw that stuff away. Oh, I don't listen to the words. I just, you know, it's about the music. We all said that same stuff, right? I have not seen one of those CDs. Actually, back then it was tapes. Have not listened to one. Not in more than 20 years. And those foul lyrics are still in my head. But I promised that I was not listening to them. It was just about the music. How many times are you watching something that was born out of hell and said, Oh, I don't pay attention to that stuff. I was watching it because it's entertaining. We're laughing at things that Jesus died to liberate us from. 
Are you all convicted yet? Okay, me too. Me too. So I don't want to move on from that. But I wanted to recover some of these things because we're getting to a place where you will perfectly understand the triumphal entry. I want to read you this last thing before I show you a video. In 1 John 2.15 it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If that was the only thing it said, that would be enough. But it doesn't. It goes on. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you hear how opposed to each other those concepts are? To love the things that the world is producing in love the Father is not possible. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, hear how that has to do with your flesh? The lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but the world. The flesh and the world gang up upon your spirit to try to make you do anything other than God's will. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. All of that puts us into an excellent position to look at the triumphal entry in its historical context. Let's play that video. It was not the first time Jerusalem had been flooded with people shouting Hosanna. That was Passover. It happened every year with branches representing victory. Pilgrims would stream into the gates, prepared to recite together Psalm 113 through 118, including the joyful greeting, Hosanna, Lord save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But this was different. The rabbi on the donkey was a sensation, a worker of true miracles, and a teacher unlike any other. It was said he had raised a dead man back to life. Surely he had the power of God. Those fortunate enough to see him entering the city shouted out their greetings and made the way more beautiful by laying down their cloaks and branches as they would do for the most honored of men. That was Passover. That was the celebration of the blood of the lambs. God kept his word and the angel passed over their sons in Egypt. How many hoped this man would be that angel of death for the Romans? How few understood that he was, instead, the Lamb. The Lamb whose blood would save them from sin and death. Had they known, would they have gone silent? Or would they have joined us today, shouting more loudly still, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's an amazing thing to try to reconcile the imagery of that little lamb that you saw with the blood-stained warrior with a sword in his hand and a breastplate on his chest. It's a difficult thing to look in the Word and see how those two things merge together seamlessly. And so, in Christian theology, they do not. In Christian theology, we choose one over the other. We choose either a lamb or a lion, but we do not see how it is possible to be both. This morning, I wanted to look at that for you. I wanted to ask you, it says that they wanted to be saved. They cried, Hosanna, and he 
Hebrew, it's not just, Lord, save me. It is with a sense of urgency. Save me now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What did they want to be saved from? Well, we've heard this teaching for years, and so we can parrot it back right away. Their immediate and most pressing problem was Rome. So they wanted the Lord as a warrior to overthrow Rome. What is your most immediate and pressing problem, though? If you listen to TV preaching, it might be any one of these following. You need health and want God to give it to you now. You need wealth and want God to give it to you now. You need success and want God to give it to you now. You need happiness. And if God gives you health, wealth, and success, happiness will be yours. They wanted all of those things too. But they at least understood that they were oppressed. They thought Rome was their problem because they could see Rome. Rome was touching them in a very real, a very physical way. If you took away Rome, though, Another power would have filled their place. How many nations ruled over Israel? What's the source of that oppression? What is the source, more importantly, of your oppression? Is it really all of that different from theirs? See, they were experiencing spiritual violence. The prince of this world wanted to stomp them out as a people. Rome was a tool, but Rome was not the problem. A lack of health. Lack of wealth, lack of success, lack of happiness are tools of the devil in your life, but they are not the problem themselves. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Who needs to be overthrown? What is the real problem? Where do we really need liberation? A spiritual power of the devil he wants to commit violence against you. I think we need to put that in its terms. I don't think that if somebody wanted to commit violence against Natalie, J.J. would simply lay down in his house and say, come right in. I don't think for a moment that Mike Valant would just lay down and say, sure, you want to come in and hurt my family? Come on in. I know that I wouldn't do that. What are the means by which this violence enters our lives? Turn with me to James 1. Tell me when you're in the 14th verse and try to hurry. There is so much good stuff you need to hear today. In James 1, 14, it says, But each one is tempted when? By his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Where does the devil enter your home? Where does he enter your life? Your own desire desires. If we cannot master, if we cannot begin to control the cravings of our very own flesh, then the devil has an open door right into your life. And he is the oppressive force. It is not wrong. But we no more understand this, no more live it out in a practical way than they did. We simply go from one Rome-like problem to another asking God to overthrow it for us. Send the angel of death against it. When these are not the things that are destroying our lives, your boss with a bad attitude is not destroying your life. Maybe your desire to be appreciated, your need to be esteemed, called the pride of life, maybe it is destroying your life. Because if you killed it, you wouldn't care what your boss thought. You would care what your Father in heaven thought. How about James 4? 
This would be the first verse. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Is that not a description of the flesh? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with who? The world is hatred towards God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. How sobering. How sobering is this? We say the world is captive to the devil, but we as the sons of God are liberating it. And yet, we become subject in our own flesh because the desires of our flesh run away, out of check, and the world is there to meet those desires and make you a slave to sin. So much so that popular theology says, oh, well, as a Christian, you have to sin. It does. It says, as a Christian, you're going to live in this flesh, you're going to sin. And what we need to do is know that you don't have to feel bad about it because Jesus has taken your sin. That is basically the stance of the Southern, well, you know who. And it's all over the nation. I wish it was just confined to the South. It's not. It's been going on since the days of Jude. They've changed the grace of God into a license for immorality. So that people go on in their sin, all the time condemning sin in the world, but going on in their own personal sin with no power from God. And we call it Christianity. Why? Because they acknowledge Jesus is Lord and believe He was raised from the dead. What good does that do if He is not Lord of every area of your life and His resurrecting power is not inside of you? So what does this have to do with the entry of triumph or the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday? We, just like them, have Jesus in our midst and we do not know what we need from Him. They were there crying out for one thing and rejected Him as a nation because they didn't know what they needed from Him. We say as a nation that we've accepted Him. But we do nothing that He says and get nothing that we need from Him. Am I wrong? Somebody stand up and say, Preacher, you are wrong. I would love to be wrong. I'd love to be publicly corrected. I wish that this was not true. But it is true. Our problem has never been wrong. It's never been health, wealth, success, or the lack of happiness. It has always been our own sin. Our own love and desire for the world. The devil uses it. He's a manipulator. He uses what is already there. To steal from you, to kill you, and to destroy you. Turn to 1 John 3. Let's pick up in the 8th verse. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Apparently, nobody checked their doctrinal statement with the book of 1 John. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Doesn't that sound like two things that are directly opposed to each other? No one who is born of God will continue to because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning. 
because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. It's amazing before we finish this. Christianity at the point that this was written was nearly 70 years old. The temple had been destroyed. We're now in the time period that the book of Revelation addresses. When he's writing, he's addressing the churches that Jesus gave him an open vision about to correct. And what started in purity is now being polluted by idolatry. And Jesus has not been gone for 70 years. Not in one man's lifetime. So he cuts right to the chase. He said, let's quit arguing about doctrines of Nicolaitans. Let's quit talking about the Jezebel's teachings that are rife in the church. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's Revelation 2 and 3. Let's stop talking about that and get down to brass tacks. He who sins is of the devil. If you go on sinning, you're of the devil. Now, it's amazing because this is exactly what Jesus taught to the most religious people on the planet in the most religious city at the most religious time of year. He's going to look right at them and say, you're children of the devil because you have the same desires he does. You have the same what? Desires. Friends, if our desires are this powerful... If they're this important in our life, why would we let this world direct what we desire? Why do you have to have a certain emblem on your pants? Why do you have to have a certain kind of sunglasses, cologne, car, house? Is it just because you like it, or is it because the world has told you you must value it? I, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I haven't found a single bit of difference in the fabric between $12 jeans and $100 jeans. I just haven't. But the labels are different. People can see labels. Why do you think they put them on the outside? Ladies, why do you think they put labels in the places on your bodies they put them? Yeah, if everything you wear has got an emblem across an area of your body that people are not supposed to read, why do you wear words on it? Are you hearing me? These are all signs. They're signs of the pollution that is on our midst and we don't even know it. I'm not about to put on a burlap sack and go move in with the Amish. I'm not doing it. But I'm convinced that it is possible to live in the world and not have the same desires that it does. Amen. I am convinced that it is possible to be a part of the liberating force rather than the enslaving force. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Not a child of God. How can he say that? You don't know my heart. Did he mention a heart anywhere in here? If what you do is worldly, then you're not of God. That's what it says. It's funny. The vast majority of preaching and teaching on these subjects, even for me in the past, always has that clause, the fine print. And the fine print takes away anything that the bold print said. Right? It says, by sin, he just means habitually. Well, what is a habit, friend? Once, twice, three times? What is a habit? At some point, you have to acknowledge if you're going on sinning, you love sin. That's what he's saying. The fine print that we usually say also says something like, well, you know, you can participate in the world, not love it. Really? What is shaping your thoughts? What is shaping your mind? 
I can hear the bass line to a certain song where Mike and I go work out, and immediately I'm fighting with lyrics that I don't want in my mind. It's at war with me and me at it. It's propaganda that is being pumped across my borders if I let it. I don't have a choice what they play there, but in my own home, I surely do. Yeah. You hear me? You know why there's sound ordinances in cities? Because old people don't like young people's music. They find it offensive. And because they find it offensive, they call their city officials. They tell the people who are in charge, we don't want to hear that. And let's just be honest, it's usually rap music they don't want to hear. In every city, that's what it is. So the young people, to combat this problem, build bigger speakers and smaller cars. <laughs> right? Roll up the windows and black them out. Murder them out. And there's this silent warfare going on. The young people who want to express what they want to express, and the old people who say, do not push that rap with a C on me. Don't do it. Don't do it. Now that's just based on a musical preference. Spencer was singing rap music that had to do with Jesus yesterday. I thought it was great. I don't know what to think about this six foot four country white boy singing rap music, but whatever. I'm not going to tell him no either. Listen, nations are smart enough to make sound ordinances because it's offensive. Why has the world not been offensive to us? See, if it's an enemy of God, it should be offensive to us. We were in a restaurant the other day and this waitress dropped like 12 F-bombs and we just laughed and smiled and talked to her. And she said, so what brought y'all to Texas? I said, we're pastors. <laughs> you know, you could hear the record stop. <laughs> the problem was not visible oppression. That was just a symptom. It was then and it is now. There's a terrible truth in the gospel. The truth is found in the 11th verse. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. The terrible truth in the gospel is that you are on one team or another. There is no middle ground. You are on the murdering, stealing, lying team, or you are on the destruction of those things team, the liberation, the righteousness of God. There is no neutral ground. This does something. It causes us to hate in our flesh and hate in this world when people point out <coughs> wickedness in our actions. We don't even like somebody beginning to insinuate that we may possibly could be wrong about something. And we have found preachers who accommodate that request. They talk about everybody's sin but yours. They talk about everybody's lives but yours. They use examples everywhere except from their own lives. Friends, the lives that you're living tell what team you are on. Amen. <clears throat> Let's get back to reconciling the lion and the lamb image. The lamb and the great warrior of the Hebrew people. Working for the warrior redeemer Lord. Who has come to give us life. Or working for the lying, murdering devil. Come to steal, kill, and destroy. Are the two choices. There are only two employers. 
This is what happened in John 8. This would be John 8, 31. And pay careful attention to the wording. I won't lie to you, but this is in your Bible. And I bet you have not wrestled with it in the way that you should. Tell me when you're there. I'm going to wait for all of you who have Bibles to get there because I want you to be able to mark it. I want you to go back, hope that I'm wrong, read it, and come back and argue with me. I want you to struggle with the text. We're still turning pages? John 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in Him, Jesus said, Who did He say this to? Who believed, we are speaking about believers. We are speaking about believers. To the Jews who had believed in Him, Jesus said, If you hold to My teaching, you are really My disciples. You can throw away all the doctrines of eternal security. You can just flush them right down a trash can. If you hold to My teaching, you are really My disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Apparently, it is a struggle to hang on to what Jesus is trying to do in us. They answered Him, We are Abraham's descendants. We prayed a prayer at an altar, and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? They didn't like the insinuation that they might be wrong about something any more than American Christians like it. We all want Jesus. They wanted Jesus and we want Jesus. But we want Jesus to say and do what we want Him to say and do. They wanted Him to overthrow Rome. What do you want Him to do? Bless me. Bless my business. Bless my family. How about this one? God bless America. It's like it's our birthday every day. More, 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 more. What is one thing that you can absolutely say He has told us to do? Oh, don't go there, Pastor. That's not talking to everybody. <laughs> I missed the exclusions list. He told us to go into all the world and teach them to obey. You know why we don't? Because we're not obeying. You can't teach somebody to do something you're not doing. Yeah. Uh, occasionally, there is somebody out there. Occasionally, there's a brilliant mastermind who can sit in something like a wheelchair and tell you how an athletic event should be played. But most of the time, it takes somebody who has played that event to tell you how to play it. You cannot go into the world and teach them to obey if you have not learned how to obey. And this is our problem. We love the world. We love it. And we love to feed our flesh. And because of that, the devil's got a bigger tackle box than most fishermen do. There's any one of a thousand things he can drag in front of us if we're distracted or polluted or enslaved. This ought not be. We need to put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. You have no room for what? They believed in Jesus until his word talked about them. Isn't that amazing? If he had said the Gentiles are slaves to sin, they would have said, yeah, that's right. Can we build you a big cathedral right here? We'll call it first something or another. Because you first said it here. 
but because he was talking about them. They moved their church letter. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Are these bad people? Are there any other kind, Dustin? See, this really gets into a worldview issue, doesn't it? We'd say, no, they're not bad people. Or maybe some of us who are ignorant of Judaism would say, yes, those bad religious people. The reality is these are people who had books of the Bible memorized, were flawless in their attendance, and who had a devotion to the Lord until their will contradicted God's, and then they loved their will more than God's. Is that really so different than us? Well, what is different is we have more of a devotion to the world than they did. We have more of a devotion to our flesh's desires than they did, and we have less biblical knowledge than they did. That's what's different. Eric, this is not a very uplifting sermon. It doesn't stay here unless you camp here. See, we don't have to live like this. How do you reconcile the lamb and the lion? How do you reconcile the lamb with the warrior? He was strong enough to do something about this pathetic condition. That's how you reconcile it. Any fool can give full vent to their anger. Come on now, how many of you have heard that from me in counseling? Any fool can give full vent to their anger. A coward can strike back. It takes a man of courage, a man of strength, a man of deep conviction to do only what the Lord says to do. Jesus was such a man. By the way, let's finish this John 8. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children... Said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. Apparently, belief was not enough for him. He was looking for action. As it is, you are determined to kill me. Where did they get that idea? Because when spiritual violence is being done in the heavens, it shows up on the earth. You will carry out the desires of your father, whoever your father is, and there are only two choices. You will be on the team that is bringing life and liberation and sight and joy and happiness, or you will be on the team that is bringing oppression, and every day we choose what that is. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your, your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. Where did they get an idea like that? You think maybe the rumor mill was working overtime? You think maybe somebody was going, isn't this Mary and Joseph's kid? The carpenter's boy? Because everybody knows that she showed up pregnant before they were married. You think maybe that's it? You think maybe the Lord uh, of this world, the bales of this world, the prince of the power of the air, had planted a wicked thought in their mind? And that their flesh received it because they did not like what they were hearing. And that bitter root began to grow. The only father we have is God himself. Unfortunately, that's not true for them, but it was the man they were speaking about. How often is slander not true of the person you're speaking it against, but is true of you? It's called projection, friends, and it happens all of the time. If you behave badly, you slander the others and say they behaved badly. Wow. 
Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue. For he is a liar in the father. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Hear this. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Because they don't like what he said. How many people have left the church over a ridiculous, tiny little grievance? And they can't say that anything that was preached was wrong. They can't say what was being taught was wrong. All they can do is slander the people. But we don't really have spiritual battles going on, do we? See, the way that the spiritual violence occurs is these spiritual powers find a weakness to work with. Do you hear me? They find something that you want and use it as leverage. They find something that you love in this world and they use it as leverage. There's a cure for this. It's called deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. When we let go of the desires of the flesh. When we are crucified to this world and it to us. Then we can follow the Lord without entanglement. Without entrapment. This is the truth of the gospel. Not saying those things. But doing them. He said, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And they called him demon possessed but mentioned no sin. They called him demon possessed and mentioned no sin. How do you reconcile the biblical image of God, the warrior, with Jesus, the Lamb? He was strong enough to resist his own flesh. The lure of the world had no hold on him. And he was more than a match for Satan. As the Lamb, he's providing a way to true spiritual power. Freedom from slavery to sin. Sin is the power of the devil. It's what he uses to get his will accomplished on the earth instead of God's. Jesus gives us the opportunity to switch teams. Turn to Luke 4. You want to know how you see a warrior in Jesus? He succeeds in all of the areas that others fail. Yeah. Dustin beat you all there. Dustin, I remember when you could not find the book of Luke. But he did not stay that way. Friends, you may have a problem in your life today, but it does not have to master you. You might not like my preaching. I don't like my preaching. I don't. I would much rather that we were all so powerful in the kingdom, that we had such a hatred for the things of this world and such a love for the Lord, that we had no time for preaching because every person in here had ten testimonies of victory over the devil. And when that happens, I will stop preaching like this. It's entirely up. Until that happens, then we're going to continually talk about God's desire for the nations. We're going to continually talk about freeing our life from things that take us away from the purpose God puts here. Triumph in, enters into the world in one way. Y'all going to look for? Yes. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. <clears throat> 
When's the last time the Spirit led you somewhere you did not want to go? Isn't that worth thinking about? We said the Spirit led us to do all kinds of things. The things that I believe the Spirit leads you to do are usually contrary to two things. Your flesh's desire and the what, what the world would tell you to do. So let's be very careful about saying the Holy Spirit led me, a bunch of charismatic and Pentecostal Christians, when it's exactly what the world would do and exactly what your flesh wanted to do in the first place. It's very rare that all three of those things line up. They're usually contrary to each other, at war with each other. The Spirit led him. Did his flesh want to go into the desert? Was there a lot of world's allures out there in the desert? No. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. Is hunger a sin? No. It would be sin, though, if he did something God told him not to do. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. What is being offered here? Will you yield to your flesh's desire? Jesus, will you yield to your flesh's desire? He's testing him. This guy looks like a man, but then men look like God. This guy looks like a man, and I've heard him called the Son of God. But Adam was called the Son of God too. What kind of man is he really? Is he like every other man that when given the opportunity will feed his flesh? But this man said, Man does not live on bread alone, the flesh is desires, but instead on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You want power? Learn to live on God's word. I want to tell you no other human being in history, not one ever, got this right consistently the way that Jesus did. Is that a warrior? Now listen, is it a warrior who can stand in the midst of screaming physical desires and say, flesh, I'm at war with you, and I said, no, you will obey me. Where are the young men in here? Somebody tell me, is that a warrior? How do you reconcile the lamb with the warrior? When a man that could have anything he wanted, a man that could do anything he wanted, a man that had 12 legions of angels at his disposal, chooses the will of God over a fleshly or worldly desire, that is the epitome of a warrior. We put this in our movies. Y'all are probably too young to remember Shane, but my daddy used to like to watch the old westerns. We put this in all of our movies. These are examples where it looks like the hero is losing. And he comes back to win in some way. Jesus put himself at a disadvantage. He made himself like a lamb to teach us from a position of weakness what God's strength is. Is there anybody in here that knows what it is to be in a position of weakness? I bet none of you have been hungry for 40 days. What was the next temptation? Did the devil offer him the kingdoms of the world? Does Luke say that the devil said they're mine and I can give them to anybody that I want? The flesh's desires had no hold on Jesus. The appeal or allure of the world could not sway him. The pride of life casting himself down to prove that he was the Son of God had no hold on him. 
tested in every way, the Bible says, and yet without sin. Come on, say that strong. Strong. How strong are you? How strong are you? If your view of yourself is that you're a pretty good person, we all come from the same disease stock. Most of us yield to one or another of these kind of temptations eventually. There is only one cure for that remedy. Only one. People were crying out for liberation. Hosanna, Hosanna. But they didn't know what they needed to be liberated from. It wasn't the Romans. It was their own powerful desire to sin that the devil manipulated so that he could do whatever he wanted to. Are we really that much different? Nobody had ever had total warrior-like victory in their battle with the flesh, their battle with the world before. As a result, Jesus could say things to and about the devil that no human being had ever said before. He'd been tested in his mastery over flesh, and he proved victory. He'd been tested whether he loved the Lord more or the world more, the kingdoms of the world, and he proved victory. He loved the Lord's direction more than he loved anything else. Total victory. Measure your life by those standards. If we insert your name, if we say, Keith, do you love the Lord more than your own flesh? How do you answer? And is it true? If we look and say, every honor, do you love the Lord more than you love the world? We all know the right answer, but is it true? We say, Jacob, is the Lord's direction in your life the only thing that's going to be done? Is it true? Turn with me to John 12. This is what happens when a human being is filled with supernatural power. When a human being is full of the Holy Spirit of God, when he is full of flesh-denying power, when he is full of tangled, bondage-breaking, and world-shattering power, he can look at the devil and say, no, he can use his neck. He can lay down his life. He has nothing to prove except his obedience to God. Man, that is free. Can you imagine, Jennifer, if you had nothing to prove except your obedience to God? How many different expectations do you ladies live with in a day? Hmm? Do you measure yourself? Do you weigh yourself? Do you compare pictures of you with other people? Guys, how many different expectations do you have in a day? Hi, my name's Eric. Hey, JJ, what do you do for a living? You're a pastor? How many running, Spence? How many different expectations do we live with in a day? Jesus had none because the, the, the world had no appeal to him. His flesh had no mastery over him. His love, his food, he said, was to do the will of him who sent him and complete his work. That's what he lived for. When you measure your life against that, how good are you? How strong are you? We're religious just like they were religious. Probably less so. They were crying for help from the Romans. We're crying for help from whatever our problem is that is really a symptom of something else. And the triumph has entered the picture and the people didn't know how to obtain it. Are you all in John 12? Yes. This is an amazing thing. Never been said before. 
John 12, 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. While the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servants will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What is he contemplating? He's contemplating, although he is a warrior, although he is the most renowned spiritual power that there has ever been in human form, He's contemplating appearing to be completely weak and surrendering his life to people, letting them kill him. He's laying it down out of love. When you see that lamb, it looks innocent, doesn't it? And that's usually what we focus on. But let's be honest, what does it look most? Weak, defenseless. God is anything but weak. He is anything but defenseless. But he went to the lowest point of vulnerability to show you no matter how weak, no matter how pathetic our situation is, when heavenly power fills this natural body, you're more than a match for the heavenlies, the world, or your own flesh. How shameful is it if we live less than that? He went to the lowest place to take you to the highest place. Then a voice from heaven I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus said this voice was for your benefit, not mine. You need the reassurance. I don't. You worry about what people think. I don't. You're insecure. I'm not. Can you imagine what it would be like to be perfectly confident in the will of God and have no competing thoughts? That is amazing. He had no competing thoughts because he didn't allow them. He had no insecurities because he didn't allow them. He was that strong. This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. How could he drive him out? How could he do what no other man had ever done? Because triumph has entered humanity for the first time. Someone who could tell his flesh no. Someone who could look at everything in the world and desire none of it. You want spiritual power? You want power over demonic things? You know, this thing that goes on in church that's called deliverance is nothing more than Christian dominance. It's, it's like two puppy dogs wrestling. One trying to prove they're more powerful than the other. If you can't find any demonic power to wrestle with other than the one that's supposed to be in your spirit-filled friend, you know, this is ridiculous parlor tricks. There are real devilish powers. And we could contend with them if we could get our eyes off of what our flesh wants in this world has to offer. You know when you contend with them, what happens? Freedom shows up here, now. When you do battle in a spiritual realm, it shows up 
in the physical realm. If we are seeing nothing in the physical realm, it's because we are not winning in the spiritual realm. And if we're not winning, the problem is not with the Lord. There are only so many hours of daylight to work. He said something that had never happened before. He said, the prince of this world now stands condemned. There is somebody here that he has no hold on. And I'm going to hand him his head in a basket. That is an amazing thing. I don't know if any of you were ever beat up when you were a kid. Men don't like to talk about that. But a girl named Caroline beat me up when I was a kid. When my sister showed up, it was a bad day for Caroline. Michelle drug her around by her braids. I felt good. It felt good. It felt good to see somebody who was oppressing me have to deal with somebody stronger than them. This is the way to deal with your flesh's desires. Drag them before Jesus. He's stronger than this is the way to deal with the love for the world. Drag it before Jesus. Grab it by its hair and drag it into his presence. He's stronger than you are. Look at John 14. Peace. This is 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. For you heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming, but he has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. He could do battle with the devil himself without fear of failure, without insecurity, without worry that he was guilty in some way, because he did not submit to his flesh. His flesh submitted to him. He did not love this world. He was here to change this world. We're called to be like Christ. Let the devil come. Let all the powers of hell come. They have no hold on me. This should be our testimony. Amen. Of course, it needs to be true. I wanted a pair of Jabot jeans in the seventh grade worse than anything. I wanted to fold them over. We called it a tight roll or a peg. And I want these little boat shoes, right? And we had just grown out of Coca-Cola shirt phase. But, you know, I was still rocking mine. So I wanted this. You know why I wanted it? Because when I went to school and looked around, it's what they had. And I wanted to be like them. But the whole time, if you asked me, I said, no, 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 I want to be unique. Right? Does that sound familiar to anybody? I want to be unique as long as I'm sufficiently the same as them to be accepted. And we have not grown out of it. We want to do everything God wants us to do as long as it's exactly what everyone else is doing. And of course, they're not doing anything for God. Are you hearing me? You should stand out like a star in the heavens. Jesus did. The whole nation went out out of curiosity. Some hated him. Some loved him. But he made an impression on everybody. He insulted most, but people still loved him. How does our life stand out? Look at John 16. 
16 verse 5. Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. You're sad I'm going to die? But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. Do you hear how sin prevents you from believing? You can say you believe, but if you're sinning, those two don't go together. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, why? Because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus could look at him completely free from any entanglement, completely free from any bondages. He didn't have the handcuffs we used in the first sermon. He didn't have the net that we used in the second sermon. He had no guilt that was duct tape that we talked about in the second sermon. He could stand there, a weak human being, filled with the power of God. And he was so strong that he could say, you want to take my life? You wouldn't have that authority unless the Father gave it to you. Again, he offered it as an offering. Do you think he wanted to? Then why did he pray in the garden three times? By the way, while he was praying in the garden, what could his disciples not do with him for one hour? Because they were still slaves to the flesh. Some of them deserted him. One young man ran away even naked. Another mentioned curses to deny that he even knew it. Why? Because they cared what the world thought. If his followers are powerless, it's not because the devil has come in and overwhelmed us. It's because we've made ourselves liable to destruction through our love of the flesh and love of the world so that we cannot stand against these spiritual warriors. Empty yourself of a love for the world. Empty yourself of a control from the flesh. Fill yourself with the Spirit of God and there's nothing that you can do. Not a single thing. It's the triumphal entry, the entry of triumph. And how did he appear? He appeared as a humble man that they wanted to be their king until they found out what he wanted them to do. Does that sound familiar? Jesus, you're my Lord, you want me to do what? God would never, and we excuse it away. This week, we focused on Passover lamb in our video. The Passover lamb on the 10th of Nisan was taken into a home. It had done nothing wrong. In fact, it was selected because it was perfect. Can you imagine that I had a little lamb in here like that one? Right now. All of us came and played with it, touched it, examined it. We did that from the 10th of Nisan to the 14th of Nisan. How many days is that, math experts? Four. Four days. Could you play with a puppy for four days and then do what I'm about to describe? And then you walk over because it was defenseless, because it couldn't stop you. You cut its throat. Its blood was going to give you power over death. That happened every year for 1,600 years, and now on the 10th of Nisan, Jesus is standing in the temple saying, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Look, I'm perfect. And four days later, they're going to pour out his blood. He's not weak and defenseless, but he was strong enough to allow it. He was strong enough to appear that way for God's will. 
He totally denied his flesh. He totally denied a love for this world, a pride of life. And he sought only to do God's will. Would you say that's a warrior? Amen. I would too. And God proved it because he raised him, hear this, in a body that was indestructible, Hebrew says. If you were anything, and we were at war, anything you could be, come on you guys that live on your video games, what do you want? You want invincibility. Yeah. You want that little code in your video game where when they shoot you it bounces off. You want to be able to do anything and not die. Well, that is Jesus. And how did he get there? He totally, totally cast out desire for flesh. He totally cast out the desire for the world. He proved himself perfect and God raised him up. Every victory you will ever have will come the same way. Every victory. And if you're not getting victory, we know where to look. We know where to look. The problem is not with him. The problem is always with us. He said, well, Eric, I prayed and I don't love the world and I don't have an addiction to the flesh and I didn't see it. It takes time. And that also is an addiction of the flesh, friends. You hear me? When we think that we can... I wanted that little boy's rib to go right back into his body at the altar today. Something bulging out of his rib. It didn't happen right then. Your flesh tells you, oh, you're failing. It's not going to work. Right? But the Spirit of God says, keep praying, deny that thought, and you will see it happen. How long? How long before you get the baby you want? How long before you get the job you want? Do you remember that He is not the solution to our health, wealth, happiness, success? He's the solution to our sin problem. That's what He is. Everything else that comes, comes from seeking Him. Let's sing Hosanna. Let's sing Hosanna and ask Him to save us from the right things. Let's sing Hosanna and not be asking Him simply to give us the new car we need. Let's sing Hosanna and ask Him to liberate us from the bondage of our own flesh's desire. Let's sing Hosanna and ask Him to liberate us from our love for this world. Because you know what happens, friends? He pours His powerful Spirit into you when you are asking for the right thing. He does that. That's what this week is about. They received him as a glorious king. But he was not glorious when they found out what he wanted to do. This is the same problem that the church has. We receive him as Lord until we find out what he wants us to do. Let us be different. Salvation occurs first from our flesh's desires, second from our entrapment to the world, and thirdly, we will hand the devil his head in a basket if we don't have those liabilities, because the power of the Christ will be in us. Amen? Y'all yeah. stand to your feet. Let us sing Hosanna together. Wednesday.